Welcome to Funeral Potatoes for the Singles Ward. Tune in to today's taboo topic with Kaylee and Tracy. Okay. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) It's always funny when we do like our recordings with other people first and then we Mm -hmm. have to introduce the podcast. It's almost as awkward as when we're like starting recording after been talking for an hour but this time we've been talking for two hours Mm -hmm. and uh now we're starting the podcast so cheers what a hoot it makes sense in some world so as we just said we just recorded an episode we had our second book club where we reviewed lies jane austen told me by julie wright um we had our awesome friend jen join us for it I think we laughed quite a bit through it. Mm-hmm. Um, we highlighted a lot of interesting points about Dane Austen, about what feminism really is, and what this book lacked. Yeah. Um, but before you guys get to that point, we do have our corrections corner. Yes. So you actually did the research on the question that I posed last week during Trek. So the question was... Can you eat animals that died of natural causes, like the chickens that died in the sun, or will that take you to um, the road that leads to death and or food poisoning? So Kaylee has the answer for that one. Honestly, this is more fun to research than it should have been. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Um, I got, I ended up pulling my information from physics forum, so I'm just going to like go through like some particulars really fast. Okay. So the thing is, dead animals no longer have any circulation maintaining tissue material like muscles and organs and pathogens, and those may increase without internal regulation and would consequently be very toxic. So typically the meat gets rancid if not refrigerated right after death. So, and then, I mean, there are some exceptions like some seafood, oysters, they're traditionally consumed alive, while lobsters are traditionally killed by like plunging into boiling water and all those other kinds of things. And fun note, it is legal in some United States to eat roadkill. Um, you just can't serve it in a restaurant. Not up to code. I mean, that's why, like, there's always those jokes about, like, hillbillies just eating roadkill. Like, that's good eating if it's on the side of the road because it's, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Yes. Um. So the thing is, like, Safety is not guaranteed. That's the thing we have to consider that because dead things do begin to rot the moment they die. It's best that we control that process as much as possible and prepare properly. So if you just happen upon a dead cow in a field, don't eat it. It doesn't matter how it died. No. But if you see like a cow kill over you, then maybe you could eat it um, as long as you know like why it died. If you kill the cow, yes, you can eat it. You got to prepare it accordingly. It is all about the circumstances. The, how long it's been dead, the situation it died in, and making sure that you prepare it properly. We do meat packaging so that the meat we buy in the grocery store, like the hamburger meat I buy at the store is going to be, it's going to be old by a few days at the very least. Um, but it has been prepared properly and they know the situation in which it died. So that is why I can then eat it. The FDA has searches that we have to follow when we're eating food and everything um, that gets sold at least to know that something has been safe. So if you come across an animal and you know it died and you know how it died and you eat it pretty soon, then yeah, you can usually eat it. But it does depend on the situation. As for actually like chickens dying in the sun, I couldn't find anything very specific stating 
yes, if you watch a chicken die in the sun, you can eat it. I don't have that direct answer. But personally, I mean, you know, personally, if it was just like my house, I would probably and I actually like kept chickens and then like killed them and ate them. I would probably think that's fine. But for a track, I would not. You should probably do an autopsy first to see how it died. And then you can do the <laughs> make the decision on whether or not there you want to eat it. Sure. Yes. <laughs> I mean, as long as you can understand what you read in the autopsy kind of situation when you read the dead parts of the bird. Um, yes. So just something to keep in mind the next time you see that raccoon on the side of the road. And then I wanted to note also for Corrections Corner that I said a lot that people on the East Coast of the U.S. and people in other countries are already living pioneer lifestyles. And when I said that, I did not mean that they are living lives without electricity or modern conveniences in prairie dresses or bonnets or like in the middle of nowhere. I meant that the people on the East Coast or in other countries are some of the first or only members of the church in their region. And therefore, they're living a pioneer or like member missionary lifestyle just by being one in a sea of many non-members, unlike Utah or Idaho, where they don't really have to live the pioneer or member missionary lifestyle because they are one in a sea of many members. So I just wanted to make that clarification because I noticed it while I was editing the episode that I said that everyone in all of these other places are living pioneer lifestyles. And I was like, that sounds wrong. So let me clear that up. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely what I was thinking. But yeah, that's that's good to point out. So thank you for that. Okay, so those are our corrections for today. Yeah. So let's get into the book club discussion now. We are thrilled to be new members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dialogue, Dialogue is a collective of independent and interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion into all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. You can support our podcast and others in the network by subscribing at dialoguejournal.com. Subscribers receive special benefits like ad-free episodes and bonus content. You can learn more at dialoguejournal.com. So check it out. So joining us in our wonderful book club discussion. So we're on our second book club discussion of the year. Exciting. We're doing Lies Jane Austen Told Me by Julie Wright, which is a proper romance, which means there is nothing sexual about it whatsoever. I love how you phrase that, Tracy. <laughs> nothing <laughs> sexual. Nothing. Um, we're just going to dive in, although I do want to do a quick um, recap for those who did not end up reading with us. Um Gosh, how do I do this? Do we need to do another dramatic reading of the... Uh... Would you like to start out with that and then I can film the details Oh, that's after. a good idea. You're just going to read the that... summary of the back? Read yes. the summary. We'll, I'll, I'll try and provide a few more details to go on top of that and we'll go from there. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't read the summary. Okay, great. Okay, let, <laughs> me, let me do a dramatic reading of the summary. I'm not going to make it through this without laughing again. <clears throat> okay. 
Ever since Emma Pierce read Pride and Prejudice, she's been in love with Mr. Darcy and has regarded Jane Austen as the expert on all things romantic. So when it turns out that what her boyfriend Blake wants is more of a hookup than a honeymoon, Emma is hurt, betrayed, and furious. She throws herself deeper into her work as CMO of Kinetics, only to find her job threatened when her boss brings in a consultant to help her expand the business to the East Coast. Her frustration turns to shock when that consultant turns out to be Blake's younger brother, Lucas. Emma is determined not to fall for Lucas, but as she gets to know him, she realizes Lucas is nothing like his brother. He is kind and attentive and spends his time and money caring for the less fortunate. But as perfect as Lucas seems, he clearly has his secrets. After all, there's an angry woman demanding money from him and a little girl who Lucas feels responsible for. Realizing that her love life is as complicated as anything Jane Austen could have dreamed up, Emma must figure out the truth. And soon, if she wants any hope of writing her own happily ever after ending and scene beautiful well done tracy thank you for that you're welcome Wonderful. perfect um okay yeah so the main characters are emma pierce blake hampton and lucas hampton okay so emma's trying to betray blake she goes and tries to surprise him for the weekend turns out he's got another girl there so she's like i'm done with you she ends up though getting a ride home with his brother who she's very determined to like except he shows up at her office a couple days later and it's like surprise we're working together for the six, next six months and so what happens shortly after is that they end up going to the east coast because they're in san diego they go to the East Coast for three weeks to New York and Boston, where they are meant to be putting together some more business for their Kinetics gym membership kind of thing. During that time, they start to get to know each other a lot, a lot where Lucas is trying to tell her to get back together with his brother, Blake. And so, but they still have a few, few precious moments until they, you know, get into some kind of weird argument. They go back. She gives Blake another opportunity. And it's like, maybe I to listen to lucas and lucas is like yeah good for you except i'm miserable now and then blake is like yeah this is perfect even though we clearly don't love each other but this is the best thing to do because that's what my brother says because blake and lucas are very close together and everything um and then it just all kind of torpedoes at their mom's birthday where she's like i can't do this with blake i don't love him he clearly loves someone else look he's blushing then there's a little situation with Lucas's original family because he was adopted into the Hampton family. And there's this whole thing. And then she's like, oh, I can't be around you. I love you. Like, I can't do this. And then it kind of torpedoes. They're at the beach. They kiss. Happy ever after. The end. I realized that this book is mm -hmm. the equivalent of a crappy Hallmark movie, but not like the Christmas Hallmark movies, just like the regular average crappy hallmark the the movies i mean yes the i mean as cheesy as the holiday the christmas hallmark movies are they do have a little bit of like us they are a bit step up they do have to bring their a game every winter um so yeah this one is definitely one of those and honestly that's what you can see when you read other similar proper romance stories that like the, which the church does because which we haven't noted yet is that this book came out in about 2017 by Shadow Mountain. Shadow Mountain is a small LDS-related publishing company. So they do other proper romances. They do some Regency romances and so on. 
they do not bring in the church into this story, but it's very clearly there. Like they do reference drinking. They do, they do reference a few other things, but you can see at the heart of it um, that it's, it's very LDS space. And so that's, it's apparent. Well, it was interesting that she was working though. Yes. But also <laughs> her job, yeah. I first out loud, she, she works at kinetics, a gym, like, business thing where they're the ultimate experience because they also have skydive indoor skydiving at their thing um and she is the chief marketing officer and that is the kinetics thing just makes sense from like an lds healthy perspective i got that and then the cmo part, like Utah valley yes and it's just like from every hallmark movie they're always yeah. in marketing they're because it's, it's a so hallmark big, job you can like play around with anything because i was going through because they do go into a bit of description like with her job on occasion like oh we're gonna go look at all these like locations oh we're gonna do this and it's just like that's not what a marketing officer does so like okay or you can't do this in that short amount of time like that's not how that works um so it's just kind of funny but it's loose enough of a night of a title where you can kind of get away with doing a lot of things which is why i can see it getting used um in so many hallmark movies and everything but like if you're gonna, if you are going to be a woman with a high-ranking job and church-related media, that's the job to have. She's not gonna be the CEO of her own company. She's not gonna like. Yeah. She still be, works for a man. She's not gonna be an accountant so. or something else functional. It's going to be, oh, you're a woman, so you're gonna be in a creative role, but we're mm-hmm. also going to heap a million other responsibilities on you and just call you the chief marketing officer because Every that time. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Do we yes, know sir. of any other books that the author has written besides this one? Oh, let me see if it mentions at the head of the book. It does in her about the author. It says that she has written 23 novels. Her first novel she wrote when she was 15. And then it lists, it only lists like a couple of books that she's written in here it says like cross my heart eyes like mine and death thieves and then the fortune Fortune cafe Cafe as well so those have won awards they sound like curated romance movies books for the most part yeah and yeah like even in the the kissing scenes there's like what one two um they're very lightly described if at all um it's very platonic it's very clean I like your use of the word platonic. Thank you. I feel like that's really appropriate. And as much as it maybe shouldn't be, um, it, it's it's appropriate. Okay, so we've, we've got the background of the book. We've got the basics. We know a little bit about the author now. Um, let's kind of go over some like fun, very basic questions that you'd find in most book clubs. First off, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, how much did you enjoy this book and why? Like three. I was going to say three and a half because I was very amused by this, but then I was also shouting no um, on nearly every other page, Um, either because of what was happening, because of some like basic incorrect information or because of some of the word usage that was um, because I have my opinions on everything. Yeah, Um, I gave it a four because I was laughing my head off the entire book at just how horrible it was and the choices that the author made and by horrible I mean just like ridiculous so I just kept laughing and it kept me entertained but it was like 
from a level of like enjoying the overall experience, I had to keep it below a five because that's too generous. So I had the lowest reading then. <laughs> yes. I, I just don't like absolutes, but I mean, I, I would just keep it under five. That would be my thing. Um, because I was amused the entire time. I had a lot of feelings about this. And I feel like that's one of the core things that you're trying to get when you're writing a book. But for personally enjoying it and wanting to read it again, I can't guarantee I will ever do that. Um, I'm surprised no. I still own the book. <laughs> I that's got it for three years ago. And oh, I got it from a library. Goodness. Nice. I it on audiobook. But mm-hmm. so my first mistake was doing that because the audiobook reader was really 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 annoying um so that was a mistake but then what as I was listening to it I felt like maybe after the three or four chapters I was invested so I was like well shoot now I have to finish it even though I kind of knew what was going to happen it just I thought the author was very dramatic and her metaphors were always very dramatic it's almost like she came up with all these metaphors and then she just wrote a story to be able to use those metaphors I thought the story was just so unrealistic. And so it, it was so unrealistic that I was like, I can't really pretend this is even close to being real or ever happening. Like it's so kind of dumb. I mean, that's, that's, that's about it for like a Hallmark story though. Like it's mm-hmm. never like it's, it's on the edge of reality, but never quite tipping the edge of being potentially real. And I do agree with you, like on the metaphors and everything, the pieces where she like brings in Jane Austen, I feel like that was her goal. She wanted to write something about Jane Austen. And then she tried to piece things together and just create something off of that, um, which is admirable. And like, there's, I mean, there's hundreds of authors who wanted to do that because it is Jane Austen, but there are issues within the book, um, within the characterization, within the flow um, that you can... That you, that you see. Tell us, so. Tell us all about it. <laughs> well, let's go into that. Let's talk about like what plot holes or inaccuracies did you notice in the book? Because the first one that I noticed, the very first one, which made me angry for the rest of the book was Lucas to his sister being like, don't you know that I can see the track marks in your arms? And then it turns out that she's actually addicted to meth. And I'm like, you don't inject meth? Did you not watch that Oprah special in 2008 where they like tell you about how meth is like made and taken like that was a national thing in like 2008. You should know it's not you're not going to see tracks, sweetie. That's heroin. No, stop it. So that made me really angry for like the entire book. The other plot hole that really frustrated me was how she says right at the beginning of the book, she's broken up with Jane Austen, and yet she continues to read Jane Austen books and watch Jane Austen adaptations any chance she gets. And I was like, you don't get to have it both ways. Like, you can't be broken up with her and then be like, oh, but I'll just watch the Colin Firth miniseries because I love Colin Firth. No, if you're breaking up with Jane Austen, you break up with Jane Austen, okay? Well, how else are you going to break up? Like, you can't have, like, you're not broken up and then you have them. Like, yes, I've broken up with Jane Austen. I'm no longer friends with her. Turns your head. Oh, look, I'm going to watch Colin Firth now. It does. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. And it it was very confusing throughout the entirety because she does have a uh, a watch party at the beginning with a friend. And then she ends up like reading the books like throughout the entire story, mm-hmm. um, which is also kind of confusing because they're pretty quick reads. I don't know if she was just reading it over and over again or what, but yes, 
we don't talk about dating too much on this podcast. I'll be honest. We don't have patience for it that really. Um, but when you do break up, you are apart. There is n- little to no contact. She does a better job of breaking up with her boyfriend, Blake Campton, than actually breaking up with Dane Austin. Yeah. So there was that. I was confused of- about the title because I thought that it was going to be more about Jane Austen. And I wasn't sure if the author wanted to write about Jane Austen because she liked Jane Austen or if she just wanted to like use Jane Austen's popularity to get readers. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. That's what I was trying to figure out when I was reading it this time around, because it doesn't make too much sense because he doesn't really go into depth on how she's broken up with Jane Austen. She hasn't talked about the actual moment of when she did break up because from the beginning, it's starting off about how she has broken up with Jane Austen, which then leads into my bigger concern is where she's talking about how she was a high and mighty feminist at her liberal arts college. Um, but she just wants to like settle down and have be married and have someone who loves her and she wants to love them back. She sets it up with having a liberal arts education as not being able to be diverse and having all of that, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, So that ended up being like my biggest issue because I did go to a liberal arts college. Like I do adore Jane Austen and I'm not interested in love. Like you can have all these different things. Like that's not any of that. And the way she continues to talk throughout the entire story sets her up as a very shallow character who isn't really feminist minded or anything else. She does have like that one, like strong punching accusation uh, when she's talking about like, Oh, I have to fight for my role and everything. And everyone's like, no, like you're fine. Like you deserved it. Like all that stuff. But the author tried to set her up as a feminist, but not a real feminist. But she also describes herself as like a really hot person too. Like multiple times. Yeah. Like right towards the beginning of the book, she talks about how, um, her winter, no one, how like no one takes her seriously as the chief marketing officer because she's the tall, skinny blonde with like piercing pale blue eyes, like the hot young thing. She basically describes herself as this like hot, gorgeous young thing that no one would ever believe is in this high position in her company. So nobody takes her seriously. And I'm like, you realize that like, you don't need to keep telling us that you're like this hot young blonde person. You can just say like, I'm 26 and I'm the chief marketing officer. And it's hard for me to get people to take me seriously instead of being like with my blonde hair that flows and is long and beautiful and my gorgeous pale blue eyes. It's like, bitch, I don't care. I don't care. I thought she was unrelatable as a character because she she kept relying on other people for validation. Like it seemed like she had really low, I don't know if I would call it like low self-esteem or low self-confidence, but I feel like that's where feminism has turned is into more like self-confidence, into more like self-love. And she's more relying on other people to validate her job, her, I don't know, whatever she wants, the work that she's doing, her relationships. And now I'm like remembering her best friend who had this whole eye situation. And I was like, this is all backstory that if it wasn't based off of a real person is just really just why, like why oh, it was this backstory, but, but it's like, she needs so much support for, from her friend that I was like, are, are you capable of being a chief marketing officer? Because sometimes you don't sound like you're capable of doing this. 
Um, yeah, so there is a lot of backstory for her best friend who does have a good bit of an appearance in the beginning to be the supportive character. She doesn't get to play the part of a foil very much, which is usually the key role as a supporting character for the, the main character for her. Um, and then she kind of pops up at the end, very minuscule though. Um, but there is that one paragraph in the first or second chapter where it's talking about her friend and the friend's name is Sil Sylvie, I think, or Sylvia. Sylvia. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. There's at least one, there's this one paragraph about her talking about her strange disgust with feet. And it has very little to do with anything. And you can say one or two sentences about like, oh, she does. She just doesn't like feet, but she's okay doing this. No, it goes into the particulars about like, okay, here are the situations where he is okay and comfortable with feet. Um, and then where, where he isn't comfortable with feet and it doesn't really play much of a role besides that one point like moving on later in the story there there isn't anything so like the character the author continues like bringing up random information that ends up not being pertinent at all throughout the story and it's definitely amusing definitely weird and you're just like why well even the cyclops bit wasn't necessary to drive no. the plot it wasn't necessary until like Emma and Lucas are having their lunch date when she talks about like, oh, we're Cyclops and the ghost. Like you can tell that story and tell about, talk about how like when you first met each other, she thought you were a ghost because you were really pale and like showed up in her room at night. And like, you thought she was a Cyclops because she got a glass eye, but like you didn't need to give the Cyclops bit right at the beginning of the book for us to understand that story. Like you could have just told the story and moved forward, but it was yeah, just that right. whole setting up the Cyclops bit right at the beginning that made me crack up. Like, why are we talking about this woman's glass eye? Like, I don't understand. Is her glass eye going to come out at some point during the book? Like, what's happening? It made me think that maybe she was basing her characters off of real people. But then I was like, do it better. <laughs> you know, introduce it when it's relevant to the plot, when it when it is important for the reader, for the audience. Otherwise, it is distracting and makes me want to stop reading at the beginning of the book. It was definitely distracting. You bring up a very good point because that happens throughout the story where th where we're suddenly given pieces at the wrong time or something. And it just doesn't really, really lead up to anything in that moment. And it creates a lot of stilting conversation within it. it the dialogue gets a little weird. And then it just seems like a lot because especially in that scene where she is sharing her story, I think that's where they're having lunch together the first time, um, Emma and Lucas. They're in like a cafeteria thing at their gym place where they're working. And then she kind of like explains that story and then she like waits a second and then she just, she suddenly launches into her whole emotional backstory and she doesn't stop. She, and she goes into detail about it, which is... I mean, for starters, it's not realistic. It's it is a ton of trauma dumping. It's very oh, yeah. sporadic. Like you're they're just dumping all this information and you're trying to create a bond with the character. Like it it didn't, it wasn't realistic and it didn't support the characters coming together at all. That's a good point, Keely, because it maybe it would have been more bonding if well, if as far as I can remember, he didn't really ask her about it. But yeah, I don't know. It it, it had nothing to do with him. Like there was no relation. And like, that's the thing also that what happens with the character throughout the entire time. She, in my personal opinion, she does have a little bit of the self-centeredness that you see in Emma Jane Austen's story. Like, I, I don't like that story. I just don't, I'm not going to go into any more of that. Um, but you can see 
her the characterization of this Emma Pierce throughout the story, um, how she constantly provides the wrong kind of information, as well as bringing in her assumptions about everything, which are very, I don't want to say old fashioned, um, but they don't make any sense. Listeners who have not read the book, there's one st- when she is first riding with Lucas, she doesn't know him. He takes her to this rundown apartment place where he's got to go deal with some family situations. And she's sitting there. She's like holding onto her pepper spray because she sees kids. Her judgment is with the, um, with the low slung pants and she's scared of them. And then she includes, she's scared of them. She's scared of the kids with gauges. She's scared of the kids with tattoos saying tattoos are the artwork on the canvas of the skin just kids she's talking about punk she and she's scared of them and she's saying i came from a liberal education like i shouldn't be scared but i can't help it they have long slow slung pants they've got tattoos they've got gauges and like she doesn't give ages or anything but she's making assumptions off of these three main kind of pieces of information about kids saying she's got reason to be scared of them that was my favorite line in the entire book was when she said tattoos are artwork on the canvas of the skin. I cried. I was laughing so hard when I read that the first time. I it doesn't sound like she grew up in California or she did in like a really nice area. Yeah, that was another thing when I started this book. Side note, because yeah, I grew up in San Diego. You were there. Like they're talking about like the Hamptons have this super, super nice house in San Diego. And I was just like, it's not San Diego. It's going to be in Carlsbad. If it's anywhere, it's going to be in Carlsbad or Coronado. Like, it's not going to be just somewhere in San Diego, personally. Um, but they, but yeah. Um, but yeah, so, and that's like another thing that I had a huge issue with her entire character setup, where she's supposed to be like this liberal feminist kind of character. And literally nothing she does represents herself in that way. Like they have, there's literally only two points where you get close to it, which is where she's making those accusations on saying like, no, I need to work harder so I can prove myself. um, So I can be taken seriously, but she constantly like works those down either by herself or the author has someone else saying like, no, like you, you got it because you deserved it. And then they just change the conversation. So it appears each time she's saying those statements that they're not really serious. She just thinks them in her head and it sets her up to look like really defensive and immature. I mean, I would love to read, you know, sure, romances with liberal feminists, but this is not one of them by any means at all. (laughs) I feel like the only reason she didn't talk to her ex-boyfriend either, because that's what I was thinking is I was like, you know, if you're really feminist, you're like, okay, cool. I can do things by myself. Don't need a man. Men are great. I work with them, but like, I don't, I can, you know, I can be on my own, whatever. But I feel like the only reason she didn't talk to her ex was because her friend was so insistent about it that I feel like that went along with her like self-confidence, self-esteem situation where she relied on so many other people for validation. No, I think that's a really good point. And I wasn't even like thinking of that, like where her mindset and where her self-worth is coming in, because you're absolutely right. She was very dependent on that. Um, Her moods and everything she felt about herself completely dependent on what other people thought of her. It sounded like the author was writing about things that she doesn't have a lot of actual experience in, which a lot of authors do, but maybe they do a little bit more research. I don't know. I, I just love everything you're saying. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah, like, yeah, authors are always going to write things that they don't know. Like I write, I mean, I'm a writer. I write everything I don't know. I mean, I research it, but I don't know a lot of things and I've never been in love, even though I write several romances constantly as a ghostwriter. 
So I can't say for sure what I write is anywhere close to correct, except for based on what I hear from everyone else kind of thing. So I, I don't think I can like provide a lot of input from that directive on the romantic part of this story. Um, but I mean, you're the one who's married between us all. So um, I honestly didn't find anything romantic about this book whatsoever. Nothing. Like when she was going on her date, whatever, with Blake again, not romantic, which she knew it wasn't romantic and she should have just like ended it there. But she was like, no, let's go and see what else happens. And then like she's having this whole like heartfelt confession to Lucas where she's telling him how she feels. And I was like, okay. It was one of those moments where it's like, this could have been an email. Like I didn't need to be here for it because there was just nothing. I felt no emotions the entire book. Like, no, my, my major emotion was annoyance. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I guess that kind of goes back to like, this doesn't seem realistic enough. Like, yeah, we know that fantasy romance, whatever, we all know it's not like quote unquote realistic, but it's relatable enough. And I felt like this wasn't relatable enough for me to think that I would see myself in a situation like that. And for the record, my, my marriage is very practical. We're not very romantic. And even so like with the book like this, and I'm a huge Jane Austen fan. I don't know. I feel like Pride and Prejudice feels relatable enough that even though it is not slash was not realistic, it still felt relatable still feels relatable like centuries later and this book feels like somebody wrote it in high school for fun and then got it published well put um and that actually does lead into another <laughs> question that i would love for us to kind of discuss um is kind of bringing in the whole jane austen concept because she jane austen is mentioned on nearly every single page and this constant reference is mainly to pride and prejudice um but you know she starts every chapter with like a quote from one of the books and everything northanger abbey so on um so do you guys what are you guys' thoughts on how jane austen would then think of this book i feel like jane austen would be furious with this book she'd be like i did not pave the way for female authors for this garbage to come out yeah, well i'm trying to think like because I feel like what the author probably had in mind was she wanted to be able to like create parallels within some of Jane Austen stuff. So like she talks about like the big romantic gestures. She talks about like the the pride. She talks about like love. She talks about like happy ever endings. And I'm trying to like see like is there actually any of that stuff actually in this book? Like I I think there's like two very loose connections to Pride and Prejudice in this book. I think one, Emma is so wrapped up in her own like preconceived notions of everyone around her that she's like not seeing them at who they actually are. So she's letting her own prejudice, which was like the root of Elizabeth Bennett's character flaw in Pride and Prejudice, like dictate how she interacts with the people around her. And then the other thing was, um, and this is just me and my mental connection um denise hampton is like a combination of like what i imagine jane austen would have been as well as i think she is also a little bit of charlotte lucas in the sense that charlotte could see very quickly and very plainly that 
Darcy was into Lizzie and she was like, oh no, they're there's something there y'all are denying it but we need to cut to the chase and like have the talk and make this happen whereas like lizzie was like no no and i feel like that was denise hampton where she was like oh no like you and lucas y'all should be fix this you shouldn't be with blake you should be with my other son tiny tiny note just for anyone who does get confused who did read the book it's actually caroline hampton denise is a friend um Literally, I have nothing wrong. I have nothing against what you said. I just want to like have that out there. Um, but yeah, Caroline Hampton is definitely that kind of person. She's not like what uh isn't it Caroline who is Bingley's sister? Yeah. Yes. So yeah. she's definitely more of a well, Charlotte Lucas. I felt like in this book, she was the one redeemable character. Yeah. She seemed legitimately talented, legitimately like confident and wise and aware of what was going on. And the true yeah, feminist yeah. in the book. Um, yeah i would definitely put it that way yes so okay so we've had a lot of fun bashing on this um but what i'd also like love to do is also kind of take a big awkward step backwards and look at this kind of book as the kind of media that is presented to us within the lds culture so because we're so this kind of book is set up for let's say about like 16 18 year olds to their 30s for women mainly um because you know everyone loves a romance this is the kind of media that does get put out to us specifically within the lds charge they'll want to be like oh it's just christian romance but it it really is lds we're focusing on lds material right now material here um so i wanted to get your guys's thoughts on like this is the kind of stuff that they are putting out to us that we should be looking at um that they're trying to sell to us um, it's a very niche market. There's only so many of us who are LDS of this age and who are going to be reading this kinds of things. Um, so what are your guys' thoughts and perspectives on how this is what the church and related church people think that we should be enjoying? Okay, so my thought is that it's actually pretty decent and improved because I am currently looking up the back of a book that I found in Deseret Book at BYU, at Deseret Book, at the bookstore at BYU in 2016. And I want to read it to you guys really quick because I think it is, it's like so cringy that it's not... It's not I'm nearly so afraid I would have read it. Okay, please tell us. I think you'll enjoy it. Hang on, I have to scroll back far enough. I took a picture of it and posted it on Instagram like <laughs> years <laughs> ago. Great. Um, I don't remember what the title of the book was called, but the book was pink. <laughs> so it says, um, beautiful young Sophia Davis is confident that her decision to marry Travis will lead her to eternal bliss. But when her new husband abruptly files for divorce, she's completely blindsided. With the whole world falling apart, what's a 19-year-old divorcee to do? The answer for Sophia is simple. She picks up the pieces of her shattered heart and returns to BYU. Hoping for a clean slate, she embarks on for her freshman year again. But this time, Sophia has a skeleton in her closet and she'll go to any length to protect her secret. As she reluctantly navigates a world populated by newly returned missionaries, sweet Susie homemakers, and serious students, she finds herself turning more and more to her home teacher, Luke. As their friendship blossoms, will Sophia allow herself to trust again in the hope of a true happy ending? I'll send you a screenshot of this. Anyway. Okay, I did just find it. It is the, oh, where is it? The Skeleton in My Closet Wears a Wedding Dress, a novel by Sally Johnson. I don't know what year that was published, but assuming that it was published a little bit before February 2016, which is when I posted that, it has improved 
I think the books in the bookstore have improved if this is what they're publishing versus what they published back then. Publication date was May 1st, 2014. And it was published by Covenant Communications, another LDS-related publisher. That sounds like a lot of books that I would have read in my teens. I don't think I've actually read that one. But it pieces together everything um, that you would expect. LDS romance novels? I've read so many. Are you kidding me? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Because I wasn't allowed. Oh. I I went through a whole thing with Tracy when I was letting her know about this because we also had like some mystery ones. So, um, you know, where there were like the older people who haven't gotten married by like 26. Um, and then there's just like fun little romances of like them at college and BYU. And oh, no, there's this one scandalous story about this girl in Australia with this like super rich family. But she had premarital relations and she almost breaks up their relationship. <laughs> Um, I have read so many of them. I, I want to read things and I was not allowed to read gossip girl and things like that growing up. So like, I was like, Oh, the only thing I can read is LDS stuff. Um, so I've read, I've read a lot of that Regency Westerns contemporary. If it was LDS romance, I may or may not have read it, or I could basically predict the entire story. So yeah, there, there's quite a few of them. I don't want to say it's a big market because that's not really possible, but there are quite a few. Yeah, so I guess my point is that I'm glad it wasn't that book that we read for. Because <laughs> I think I would have, I would, I don't know if I could have read it, but this was at least like there was nothing to do with the church in it. No offense, Kaylee. I'm sure young Kaylee was having the time for life reading these books, but. <laughs> I'm like you, Jen. I never knew that proper romances existed because my mom did not care what I read as a kid. As long as I was reading something, she did not care. So if I came home with a Fabio on the cover <laughs> romance novel, she was like, whatever, read it. You're going to learn something new today. It didn't penetrate my mind whatsoever. Like I didn't understand what was going on, but. But there was penetration in the pages. <laughs> yes, there was. <laughs> We're learning all about it. Yep. Oh my but none of that no. happened in this book. No. No, actually, in fact, it kind of reminded me almost of like a like a Korean soap opera kind of thing. K-drama. K-drama. There we go. Thank you. So innocent. I I feel like this type of stuff being catered to people in their like 20s, 30s is really unrealistic. Like Jen had already mentioned earlier. If you're thinking like, oh, by 26, I'm going to be the chief marketing officer at my company. Um, I'm going to have this great salary, great life, and all of this stuff. And I'll magically stumble upon this dude through Two dating his brother. Brothers who yeah. are like heirs to whatever. And oh, by the way, one of them is actually really humble because he used to be a foster kid. Yeah. And also they're okay with me dating their brother. Like I have never met brothers who are okay with interchanging their partners like that. So I feel like this is setting up like 20 to 30 something year old women for failure, especially with the whole like, oh, they've been dating for like six months. They're immediately going to get engaged and have the wonderful happily ever after. It's just, it's not a thing. A lot of stories will try to set up 
um and like movies all like media will try to set up like a, a fairy tale kind of story where it's like here's everything you could aspire to which you know on occasion it is fun but when it does touch the realm of completely unrealistic um in certain ways especially when it comes to like human nature and that kind of thing it definitely does get a lot harder to enjoy and to accept and continue reading or enjoying yeah and i think that the the effort that was put into here doesn't really hit on important issues that kind of brings up and like it starts to but it completely sidelines everything it's completely beating around the bush on very important topics um such as like like um abandonment um like depression like it hits on like a lot of like it touches on things without like really doing anything and it could have done a lot more except that the focus was on romance without real romance they're trying to hint at it the entire time and it's like it's like drinking LaCroix <laughs> you it's like a hint of flavor it's like almost the there the but it's not really yeah have you it, okay so I think that you know it could be argued that she was trying to write like Jane Austen who also I feel like if anything Jane Austen got really into feminism like that was the cause that she was addressing and and um getting into a lot of the time but I as far as like how unrealistic it is I feel like she might have said well I'm, I'm trying to write like Jane Austen did you know like at the time you just courted each other you didn't you didn't really kiss each other you know like if you did it was a huge scandal and whatever but I don't know dating has changed courting has changed <laughs> and it actually reminds me of Kaylee now that you talk about it I don't know if either of you have heard of Colleen Hoover and I haven't read a lot of books by her but she came out with a book recently called It Ends With Us and it is like I would say like more of a romance novel but it's about abusive relationships like physically abusive relationships and so it gets into I think a little bit more how to deal with that and how to get out of it but then it also only focused on one cause and like one issue whereas I think this kind of like you said Kaylee is like abandonment and also the foster system and homelessness and I don't know there were like a few other things there like you know her work as a feminist CMO and I don't know it was kind of like a lot of different things where she didn't really have the opportunity to focus in on any of them I'm willing to like overlook how realistic things are if there's actually substance to it like in Hallmark movies I can totally disassociate from reality because I know that it's like it's a Christmas Hallmark movie where they're in a town that's literally called Christmas and everything magical happens during Christmas time. Like I'm willing to suspend belief for that, but like this book had no substance to allow me to suspend disbelief. It was just like, oh, she's actually falling in love with this guy, but she's not because she can't fall in love with this guy because she's he's the guy's brother okay, get over that. Have a conversation about it like an adult. You're in the 21st century. Like you don't need to abide by the Regency rules of courtship and dating where you don't have conversations that are hard to have. You're an adult. He's an adult. You can have the hard conversations. And there's not even this whole opportunity of the classic hallmark miscommunication because there's no communication that happens whatsoever in this book. At least in a Hallmark movie, they're like, oh, here's the big miscommunication where I said something wrong and he said something wrong and here's our five minute conflict. 
But like in this book, she was creating multiple five minute conflicts that didn't actually exist or happen because no one said anything. And it was all just in her head. Like she was just making up the conflict herself. So it's like, right. And that's where I was like, what is it that she's insecure about? Because she keeps making up these issues in her head that aren't actual issues because she hasn't bothered to talk to these people and just have, you know, like, like you said, an adult conversation about it and ask a question that is, well, okay. One of the things that I thought was really funny is that she does when she, when she confronts, I can't remember his name, Luke, when she confronts him about like his sister and his sister's daughter and he's like so offended Cause she's like, well, I thought that, you know, like this was your, maybe your ex with your daughter. And he was like, how could you think that? And he doesn't talk to her for like a day or so. And I was like, that's not realistic either. You all need to stop acting like this is, I I don't know. Mm -hmm. It was, that was beyond unrealistic. Yes. Um, Yeah. Well, (laughs) ignores her. He doesn't talk to her. Nope. And well, and then like, that's the whole thing, like with the communication in this, like, I feel like she was trying to replicate a, a kind of a thing like with Darcy, like him writing that dramatic note and explaining everything and that kind of thing. But it doesn't play out well in this one because there's really little to no resolve, even at the end of the story where a few things kind of get explained, but kind of not. None of the issues get really resolved at the end. Like she doesn't suddenly stop having abandonment issues just because she's traded one brother for another. And, you know, it does clear up where Lucas forgives her or something um, for thinking that was his ex and not his sister. Um, Like Blake, they're like kind of agreed that, okay, yeah, Blake clearly likes that other girl, which is another mess in its own. But nothing gets like really well resolved because no one will talk about anything. And that does not play well. And yeah, especially in this 21st century where they have access to so many forms of communication so and they make a and they make a point in that book where she's like i looked at this person's instagram i looked at this person's twitter and i looked at this person's facebook like they mentioned all these kind of things to connect with people and there's literally nothing she did talk to blake i i forgot about that she did have a conversation Mm -hmm. with him and i was like okay this is good but i did think it was really funny It, it reminded me of a cartoon movie where a dude would just be like, oh yeah, look at that other girl. I am really into her. No, I'm not really into you anymore. I don't really care about you. I've just been pursuing you for like the last couple, like the last month and just be like, okay, yeah, I'm ready to move on to this other girl that you said I was okay to move on to. Okay. But also like attached to that, but put at the very beginning of the story, she spends like that first chapter talking about how she was not looking to get married. She didn't want to get married. And she knows that Blake didn't want to get married. It's been very clear since they started dating that they don't like neither of them are interested in marriage and yet she's allowed her family and her friend no not her family i'm sorry she doesn't have any um she's allowed her friends to convince her that she's gonna get married like this is the weekend she's gonna get proposed to like that's the precipice that is set up at the beginning of the story she thinks she's gonna get engaged which as you read into her story a bit more she had no reason to suspect that at all and like it's just one of the many problems that starts out of the story. But the problem also on top of that is that it's kind of a normal problem to have as a Mormon to expect marriage out of any relationship that you are in, no matter what. 
you think that it's going to bring, it's going to go to merge, whether you've been dating for one month, whether you've been dating for four, whether you've been dating for a year, they all expect marriage, uh, which is just one problem in its culture, but it plays out into this book. And this character is just constantly setting herself up to fail. And it's all in her mind, which is the most annoying part. Nobody around her knows that these conflicts are happening except her, because it's all things that she's just playing up in her mind. And I think that's another like big problem that this book caters to like people our age with like, oh, it's okay if you're making up all of these problems in your mind, because look, Emma, she constantly made up problems in her mind and she still ended up getting married. (laughs) Like that's (laughs) like what it's teaching people. And I'm not okay with that. I mean, it reminds me of Lizzie McGuire a little bit when she would just have these conversations with herself and freak out mentally and then everything would not be as big of a deal as she thought it was. But Lizzie was 13. Also true. Also true. (laughs) Which though then plays into, and we've talked about, like, I think we've talked about um, on the stunted growth that some Mormons face, like, especially like sexual, I think we brought this up in like one or two episodes before, but it does show up in other ways as well. And yeah, this is a perfect example of some form of stunted growth that like we just, often miss out on for some reason you mean like what do you wait what do you mean by stunted growth like in what way Mm -hmm. okay so stunted growth kind of means like because we don't have as much experience or awareness into certain situations um like with a lot of relationships you kind of just we have expectations of how everything will go Mm -hmm. um and so we kind of have that stunted growth situation with our sexuality because we're taught not to basically embrace it in any shape or form unless you're in a heterosexual relationship and married you're not supposed to experiment with it. You're not supposed to like really educate yourself on it. You're not supposed to know anything about it really until you're married until that's then. Okay. Um, and that kind of plays into a lot of other play- ways when you're within certain religious spheres, at least in my perspective and like the little education that I've put on myself. And so I've seen that play out within the church. And I feel that this book does play a shadow of it within our stunted growth and understanding certain things, especially within relationships. We have an expectation of how they will end up going. And from what I've seen in um, LDS partnerships and everything, they tend to be missing out on a few things. And it's not just, it's not because they're dumb. It's not because they're um, like, there's not really a good excuse for it. It's just because they grew up in this religion and this faith. Um, and expecting certain things that are suddenly just not as clear anymore because things are not that black and white as we get older. And so that's kind of what I term as stunted growth. Like we should have learned some more things, but we thought we'd hit that level of like knowing everything that we needed to. And we didn't realize that lid doesn't exist. We should have kept growing more. And books like this create a lot of those expectations. They do. Um, I kind of like that in this book, you can see it. So if some reason and they kind of learn like, oh, I was doing this too. I shouldn't have been doing that. I can grow from this. Just like Emma clearly needed to learn from this kind of thing. So it kind of puts it into the light a little bit if you're looking for it. Um, but it's also easy to miss. It, I can't imagine my 16 year old self reading this and agreeing with half the stuff going on because I didn't understand a lot of things growing up. I didn't think you needed to communicate a lot about so many things. And I was very wrong. And I just know a lot of people who are in that same boat as me. We need to make sure that we are aware of the mistakes that we're making and we're improving on them and helping the culture that we're in to continue to improve. Like that's one of the reasons we have like this podcast, like to talk about the things that we're not talking about. Like 
we just don't do a lot of talking properly in LDS culture. That's all. Just I could I could rant about this forever. Clearly, um, I just have a lot of feelings. Yeah. Okay. I so think we've, I think we've covered pretty much all of our discussion questions, except for this last one, which is completely away from this book entirely. It's really just if <laughs> we you were asked to take work from Jane Austen and adapt it to an audience of your choosing whether like gender, age, religious beliefs, whatever, what story would you pull from? What like Regency era novel piece or Jane Austen work would you choose from to make it the basis of your adaptation? So this is a question that I had posed and I would invite us to answer this as well as I would love for our listeners to hear this part and to answer it and to send us their thoughts as well. And this is not me asking anyone to write a story. I want to hear people's thoughts on how they would write their own modern or um, fictional parallel version concept idea pulled from Jane Austen's works and how they would adapt that for themselves. Because this is clearly what the author was trying to do. She wanted to pull in what she loves about Jane Austen and create a story around it. Whether or not she did a good job, that's not so much the matter of like for this question. I want to know what people are interested in, like what they like from Jane Austen and how they would find a way to create their own story about that kind of thing. Because I've been thinking about this because can we actually have better or even just good adaptations of Jane Austen's works and everything? Like we've got so many adaptations. Some of them are great, like Clueless, and some are less great and some are just kind of weird. But it's just something that I've been thinking about because Jane Austen wrote for her time. If we wrote for our time and some kind of sphere, how would we be relating Jane Austen stuff to make it actually applicable and relatable in our own way? Okay, so two things come to mind. Have mm. you ever seen Austin Land? Okay, I was just going to check. It's great. People that we know, my roommates in Orlando, were the ones that introduced me to it. And I was like, this is great. Um, and then the second thing that this makes me think of is the show on Amazon called Modern Love. I don't know if either of you have heard of that. It's really good. I think you would both love it. Um, but it tells people's modern love stories. And it's not just about romantic love. It's about all sorts of different kinds of love. And what I think, like, one of the reasons I think Jane Austen is so um, successful and relatable is because she uses a classic misconception of pride and arrogance and um you know, just being a little bit cocky and self-assured as the center of her whole story. But then she plays on, like you said, Kaylee, what was during their time, classic stereotypes and tropes and, um, you know, very recognizable things that were pretty typical for that time. So if I were to say like, how would I change this to our time? Then I would maybe look at all the different kinds of attraction, care, love, um, relationships, friendships, companionships that exist and write about how maybe there are misconceptions there, but not quite misconceptions with like stereotypes and assumptions, but misconceptions about maybe whether or not people really thought that that love existed there. So like, I'm going to try and think of a, oh gosh, all of them are really good. There's one where this woman has, I think she's bipolar and she's trying to pursue a relationship with this guy who meets her. And so eventually it comes out, like he finds out that she's bipolar, but he, he really likes her. And so they like 
pursue a relationship together. And it's based off of a true story. I think they're all based off of true stories, but they, they, they go through how, how it works best for them. And then there's another one where there's a gay couple who is trying to adopt and they end up being paired with a homeless girl who moves in with them before she gives birth. And so it's a story of how they end up having her baby, but also how they end up learning about her as a person and all that she is kind of giving up, but also all that she's giving them as the the physical mother of their child. And then their relationship as a couple also has its own little things going on because they're trying to decide, okay, are we okay with this homeless girl living in our house, you know, while she's pregnant. (laughs) And so I guess maybe in this case, some of the assumptions are a little bit more typical of maybe what would happen in this current era, but still like, it's not old fashioned. I don't feel like it's out of touch. And maybe it's because all of these stories are based off of true stories, but yeah, I would just look at what people consider to be not just traditional love for a romance novel. I like that a lot. Thank you for sharing that, Jen. Yeah, there. I mean, Aristotle said there's like what five different variations of love, and it's not all romantic, and it definitely does deserve to be more explored. And I really like those uh, comparisons that you include um, included, and all the details that you were looking into. Not just like yeah, not the stereotypes, but like the connections and everything. They're invaluable, and they get underrated because we get so focused on creating that perfect love story about you know usually a heterosexual couple. And just being like, okay, like this is how, this is the best thing that can exist. And that's not the only thing that exists. Like we need to give more consideration to this. So I really like that. Thank you for sharing. Tracy, do you have an answer for the question? I do, but it's kind of weird. Um, I mean, obviously anything I say is usually really weird. So I've been thinking about this a lot since I've been watching and finishing the Bridgerton series. Like I finished reading the books last month and just everything. But I have an unpopular opinion. I like the first season more. I like the second book the best. The, oh, okay. Yeah. The second book is the best book in my opinion, but like this, the season wasn't as exciting as the first season. But anyways, so I've been thinking a lot about writing or creating something that's kind of like Lost in Austin where like the girl somehow gets transported back into, or she gets like sucked into like one of the Austin books and she has to like help the characters figure out like their problem and like get them together because it's all messed up where she is. I've been thinking about that, but I've also been thinking about twisting it from like a modern perspective where like someone from 2022 gets dropped into Regency era London and you know, like they're stuck. They have to figure out how to make their life work in this time period with the courtship and everything. But instead of just going with the 1820s romance rules and society rules, they just bring 2022 rules into everything and blow the whole thing up and just like say, okay, we're going to communicate. We're going to have the real conversations. We're going to actually date you're not just going to like tell me that you like me and then sell me off to the highest bidder. No, like I am a prize to be won. So you're going to actually talk to me and tell me if you have substance. So like 
the rules of Jane Austen's like you a woman gets to choose who she ends up marrying, but like Homegirl is full 2022 the entire time, twerking in the balls, being a hoe on the side, like being like, hey, if the dudes can hoe around, then so can I. Like all of the rules just in the Regency period. So I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I don't know how I would write it or how I would make this happen, but no. that's the loose idea that I have floating around in my brain right now. I feel like that might exist. Maybe not. Bridgerton it probably is- does. Someone's probably come up with it already, but this is just what I've been thinking about a lot lately. Yeah, Bridgerton is a, a good, interesting version of that. There's a movie, I think it's with Meg Ryan, but there's a movie where the opposite happens and you have somebody, um, this guy from... Kate and Leopold? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that movie. Hugh Jackman. I love that movie. <laughs> and Meg Ryan. <laughs> Meg Ryan. There we go. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. No, that is a good movie. Yeah. Um, time warp movies and people going back and forth their time is always very interesting because then yeah, you get to watch people in um, different times playing with different rules and everything. Um, yeah. Like Outlander and everything. It's always a very, very interesting concept to play with. So very fun. I don't have that much of a story at all. I just want to see what other people had to share. Um, my only thought process, <laughs> don't judge me. Um, I do enough writing on the side. Like I don't have time for more creative stuff. Um, but my only thought process was like in applying this to more stuff and like kind of like what I've shared thus far, um, you guys all know like my dumb background sometimes. Um, I would want to recreate some version of like Northanger Abbey where I think what's her character's name, whatever. So the whole concept is like this girl reads all these like Gothic novels. So she kind of expects bad things to happen when she gets to go stay at this older estate with friends. That's what, like one of the main trending um, ideas within it. And it's about taking a naive girl, taking her out of her comfort situation and making her realize, or she has the opportunity um, to realize that she's wrong about a lot of things. She's allowed her imagination to get away from her and it's affected her relationships with people. And I think that's like a very relevant storyline that can be played to any time frame at all. And it'd be really nice to see that portrayed even just like within the LDS scope, because that's what we've talked about a lot on this podcast, on this podcast, because we do have a lot of like preconceived notions on what it does mean to LDS. And there's constantly a debate on that because not all members get along for various reasons. And it'd be nice to be able to see that, to see people, edu- to see at least one character educating themselves um, that could then be read and enjoyed by people and give more few more people a hint about ki- that kind of thing. Because it's very easy to live in your preconceived notions and your imagination on what is right and what is wrong. Um, and then to see it all blow up in your face. There's a podcast that I think I've told both of you about already, and they've stopped doing it since the last couple of years, but it's called Mormon marriages. And I started listening to it a couple years ago. Yeah. And it just, they, they cover a lot of marriage scenarios that are not typical or regular. Um, and so I feel like in that sense, I don't know if it's like necessarily romantic, but they like shine light on different ways that you can have a relationship in that context. And I like it. Yeah, we've definitely talked about this before. I think we've mentioned on the podcast once or twice, at least in the beginning when we were trying to talk more about dating and that kind of thing. Um, but yes, that was an excellent podcast. And like, I, I've listened to a ton of other LDS podcasts as well since then. 
Faithful Feminist, Beyond the Block. There are so many podcasts out now um, talking about the topics that we don't discuss in church as much as we should and going into going in deeper about that, not just taking church curriculum information, but diving deeper into scientific information and so on to help us improve our relationships with each other, whether it is romantic, um, whether it's sexual, whether it's just friends and church leaders and so on, because we need all of that. We come in with our preconceived beliefs and notions and it doesn't always benefit us. Um, so yeah, thank you for that mention. This was great. Thanks for joining us, Jen, and for yes. reading this book. And even though it was a hard thing to get through. <laughs> there were times when I didn't think about giving it up, but it was easy because it was an audiobook. So I was like, eh, whatever. <laughs> you know, I realized Make when you said faster. that the audiobook narrator's voice was really annoying. I'm like, it was probably to match the character that was just so ungodly annoying to read that I can only imagine her voice must have matched. Yeah, I think I made it a teensy bit more annoying because I turned up the speed a little bit so that it would go <laughs> faster. <laughs> Gotta get through this. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Just, yeah. But, you know, like, like narrators tend to be very expressive when they talk or when they, you know, narrate. So I was like, okay, we're being really, really dramatic here. You know, like it's already dramatic and then you're just adding more <laughs> drama. It's a little unnecessary, but yeah. Yep. But it it was definitely an interesting read at the very least. And it does help us to shed light on the fact that there is proper romance LDS related stories and we do need to be aware of them and the benefits and problems that they can shine a light on or happen to be. So you know what I think both of you might be interested in reading? Um, it's quite long, but I think you would both enjoy Jennifer Finlayson Fife's dissertation on how patriarchy in the church has affected female sexuality. I've definitely gone on her site a few times. I have not read her dissertation. Though. Yeah, same. I, I will have to read that. And it is long. It's like like over 200 pages, like 260. Something Did she like that. put it into a print book by chance? Because then I just buy that as well. I don't. I don't think so. Oh, okay. Because I had to, like, when I Googled it, it, I found it, like, on a site that had it um, saved as documented research. But if you want, I can send it to you. It just, it's, it takes a while to get through. But, but you go through it and it's like, well, all of this research still stands. Yeah, no, I'm always looking for more to read. I've actually started a spreadsheet, just so I know um, that I'm trying to track of all the articles that I'm starting to read um, and collect about, like, LDS related stuff so that I can apply it both to this podcast um, and just have it on the hand for reference when I don't like want to read and enjoy things. And that touches on things about sexuality, um, church membership, patriarchy, and so on. So definitely feel free to send over, even if it's just a link, that would be plenty. This was great. Yes. Join us um, anytime, Jen, to do oh, another discussion. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for joining us. We, I loved hearing your thoughts and everything. It's so good talking <laughs> with you. <laughs> yes. I mean, I love seeing you both and catching up with you. It's always good. So much fun. It is. Yes. We need you guys to read this book and share your thoughts with us so we can share them with Jen. Yeah. Um, if you guys find the book, please read it. Please let us know what you think. I, I feel like um, we didn't give it good reviews, though. So anybody who listens to this is going to be like, no, I don't want to read this book. <laughs> there could be someone listening that was like, that sounds like the book for me. And like, more power to them. Some people like to read things that they know they won't like. Um, they could have read this book 
and they did like it. And now they're listening and might not even made it this far through. And they're like, I like this, but how dare they malign it? Um, and I mean, there could be any sort of reactions. There could be people who started this book and haven't finished it. And hopefully this will prompt them and their curiosity to finish it just so that we can hear their thoughts. Um, I have no idea, but I would love to hear any of anyone else's thoughts. Um, if you guys want to defend the book, you're more than welcome to, um, we have our own opinions. We're allowed to have them. We want you to have your own opinions. If you have anything that we didn't point out on this podcast, if you think we missed anything, please feel free to DM us and we'll share. All right. So thank you again to Jen for joining us. We love talking with you. This was a lot of fun. I know the book was a bit of torture for us all, but it definitely made for a fun discussion and I will take that. Hopefully you guys had fun listening to us if anyone has made it this far. If not, that's understandable. For those of you who are still with us, thank you. Um, If you read the book, we would love to get your thoughts on it because I haven't, you know, asked you that enough. If you didn't read the book, that's fine too. You have no need to um, do what you will. But we do hope that you will be joining us for our next book club. We are still in the works of picking out which book it will be. It will be a good one though. We're narrowing it down. It's going to be really good. We'll have one before the end of the season. It'll most likely be in September. We're trying to do it like on a quarterly basis. So most likely it will be in September. So stay on the lookout for our Instagram page and then listen here when we'll obviously make the announcement for our next book club discussion and join us. Like we want more people in these discussions. So join us. Even if you're anxious about it because you're like, I don't actually know these people, just do it. It's fun. It's a good time. Even if you haven't read the book or you didn't finish it, we don't care. We Will we spoil it? Yes, we will. But it will be a good time. And also, if you have suggestions down the line, I think we're really enjoying this book club that we're doing, and we will continue to do that in our continuing seasons so long as we're doing this podcast. So we'll be doing more down the line. So if you have any ideas on what we should be reading, what we should be including, please feel free to do so. Our aim is to have some kind of LDS focus in it. Um, this one was pretty loose, but we it does have a point into why we did include it. But we're looking into all sorts of things, including fiction, nonfiction, and so on. So yeah um yeah so just keep that in mind and until next time bye Bye.